Hello. Welcome to Under the Oaks, a podcast brought to you on behalf of Western Koshkonong Lutheran Church in Pleasant Springs, Wisconsin. I'm Pastor Trent Sari. And I'm Lauren Thompson. We're glad that you could join us today. We are going to begin this podcast series on a course or a discussion called What Does the Bible Say? I think you'll notice right off the bat that it doesn't say what does pastor say or what does pastor think about this or what does Lauren think about these topics It says, what does the Bible say? And I think that's an important thing to point out. As confessional Lutherans, that's what we represent here, we don't believe that what we hold to and what we teach and confess is an interpretation. We don't think that it's uh, what Luther taught, or, you know, that's why we hold to it. We say it's because it's what the Bible teaches. And so there is a series of what we call hermeneutics, principles of Bible interpretation that we follow that ensures that we are not following somebody's opinion or somebody's interpretation. And these are fairly straightforward. We believe that the Bible is God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word. Every word of it is true and trustworthy, given to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit working through God's penmen. And therefore, God doesn't ask us, how do you feel about this? Or what do you think about this? It says, what what did I say? And so, Hopefully we can always answer your questions with, thus saith the Lord. And that's really what we ought to do, right? Uh, We believe that the Bible interprets itself. If it's God's word, then God can interpret God. The Holy Spirit can interpret the Holy Spirit. Uh, We don't need to interject ourselves into that uh, question. Also, some people would say, well, how do I know that you're not just pulling verses out of context and trying to use them as support to your point of view? And that's a good question, but we do follow what we call the analogy of faith, which means that we take the sum total of all that the Bible teaches in regard to any topic, whether we're talking about creation or baptism or uh, the two natures in Christ or whatever it might be, we want to look at all that the scriptures say. And if there's a verse that seems difficult for us to understand, we let the rest of the scriptures speak and shed light on that verse. So it's not a matter of pulling something out of context or trying to make it say what we think it should say. We let the Bible interpret itself. Now, without further ado, this first lesson that we're going to be discussing today deals with a topic uh, called the natural knowledge of God. Now, when we're talking about the natural knowledge of God, we're talking really about what can we know about God simply by looking at the world around us. We're not talking about the Bible at this point. We're not talking about what does the Bible say about God. We're we're talking about as we are born into this world, is it possible to know anything about God? So uh, the first question that we want to wrestle with is, is it necessary even to prove that there's a God? Is there something in our world that we could look to that would suggest that there's a higher power, there's a creator, if you will? And certainly when the Bible speaks of this, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It, it, it just starts with that assumption that from the beginning, God always existed. He always was. It doesn't seek to prove that, that he exists. It doesn't seek to, uh, you know, make an argument in that regard. It just starts with the assumption that God exists. He's the one who made everything that we see. And furthermore, uh, the psalmist says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. So the Bible really paints the 
the position of the atheist as a foolish one. Only a fool could say that there is no God. And that's exactly what, of course, atheists would say. They would say, uh, you know, there is no such entity as God. Uh, you know, an agnostic takes a little bit different position, and they say, well, you, I can't really know. Uh, we talk about believers who confess some sort of belief in God, and agnostics who try to split the difference between an atheist and a believer and say, well, maybe he exists, maybe he doesn't, but I don't think he can really know. In some ways, the atheist position is a little bit more honest, and agnostic, uh, will, as we'll see, ignores the evidence that the Bible says is there. But nevertheless, the Bible says that only a fool, it's foolish for a person to take that position of an atheist. Now, I guess we would have to say, well, what evidence then is there in the world that we live in that would suggest that there's a higher power, that there's a God, a creator, so to speak? And the book of Hebrews says uh, in chapter 3, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Lauren, if you and I were to be walking down the street and we were to see, uh, you know, some scaffolding going up, some cement that had been poured, uh, maybe there's a, a package of roofing shingles laying there, uh, what would we conclude? Well, obviously, somebody is there working, building the house or an addition or whatever they're doing. Right. Even if we didn't see anybody there, we would rightfully conclude well, somebody must be building a house. I mean, we wouldn't say, oh, look at how those boards randomly gathered together and look at how that concrete randomly poured itself into that nice square shape there. Right. It's I mean, amazing. Yeah, it would be pretty foolish, don't you agree? That's foolish. So we look at the world around us and we can see evidence of a creator. We see beauty, we see design, we see order, which is not what really what we would expect when you when you consider the alternative theories out there, uh, the Big Bang, all this you know the, the complete randomness, chaos. All of a sudden, there's order out of chaos. It it doesn't make sense. But we would say uh, all of these things point to evidence of a creator, a God who who created all things. As as the psalmist says in in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. If you and I were to look at a, a nice painting, Lauren, we would see that the artist has a particular eye for contrast or color or, you know, depth or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. But we certainly would not look at a painting hanging on a wall and say, oh, wow, look at how those colors randomly organize themselves into that beautiful mountain picture there. The shapes are... Right. Right. So, again, we can look at uh, creation around us and we see evidence of a creator. And this is what St. Paul says in Romans chapter 1. He says, What can be known about God is plain to the Gentiles, that would be to unbelievers, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, that is unbelievers, are without excuse. So again, only a fool could ignore the evidence that is around us. There's beauty, there's design, order, all of these things. Uh, We look at the human body and all the the different functions uh, of the organs and how they work together and all this stuff. It's it's not by random chance that this happened. Now, that's on the one side. That's, That's one argument for the existence of God. 
But the next argument, I think, is even more intriguing. And that's the matter of what we call the conscience. What, what would you say the conscience is, Lauren? I think most people would recognize the conscience as that little voice that comes to you and, and uh, maybe questions what you're doing or what you're about to do and just gives you an, an idea of right and wrong. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. I think that's a good a good des- description of how most people would understand the conscience. It's that little voice that tells you, don't do that, you're going to get in trouble. Right. Uh, or, you know, this is the right thing to do, whatever it might be. But in the book of Romans, Paul says, the Gentiles show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. The conscience, wow, it's a strange thing. When you think about it, the theory of evolution really is based on this idea of survival of the fittest. Uh, The only thing that ensures that you continue to survive is that you are strong enough and smart enough to get to the food, right? Right. And you're able to reproduce. So there's nothing in the theory of evolution that would suggest anything about a conscience. In fact, it would be just the opposite. It would be to your advantage to lie, to cheat, to steal, to push grandma over at the grocery store. Do whatever you have to do. Yep. Get out of the way, grandma. Yep. Uh, if that's what it takes to get to the food, then too bad, so sad. You're the survival of the fittest. You're the strong one. You'll get, you'll get by. But the conscience says, no, that's not right. You shouldn't steal from your neighbor. You shouldn't take your neighbor's spouse. You shouldn't take somebody's life. All of those things that are universally agreed upon, no matter where you go in the world. And it's not to say that some people don't do horrific things because they certainly do. And we're not arguing that the conscience is completely foolproof either, as we're going to talk about in a little while. Nevertheless, the existence of a conscience is baffling to the scientific community. If you were to go to the remote area of Siberia, and let's say there's, a, there's an elementary school there, and the kids are outside playing on the playground, and one takes the ball from the other one, he says, hey, that's not fair. You know, it wants to tell the teacher. He's appealing to a standard of right and wrong that everybody agrees on, everybody must know about. Well, that again points us back to evidence of what we call the conscience. Where did that conscience come from? And the Bible tells us that it is a remnant of the moral law written on man's heart at creation. Now, again, since the fall into sin we're going to see that that conscience is not always foolproof. It's not always trustworthy or reliable. Nevertheless, its existence, though, is evidence of a creator. So, you know, the the next question we'd have to ask is, you know, what are these two things? You know, the creation itself and this conscience, what do those things tell us about God? Obviously, there's limits. Does, Does the creation, as we look at the world around us, and conscience tell us, that the true God is the triune God who sent his son to this world in the person of Jesus Christ who died on a cross. No. It doesn't tell us those things, obviously. Does it tell us God's name? No. It doesn't. No, it doesn't. It doesn't tell us anything about who God is. It simply says there is a God. So, uh, what does the creation and conscience tell us about God? The book of Romans, Paul writes, he says, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So when we look at creation, we can certainly see 
evidence of God's mighty power, when we look at the giant mountains and the, the huge seas, when we witness the forces of nature and hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes and all these different things, obviously uh, we have a very powerful God who created all these things. But it still doesn't tell us who he is. The psalmist in 100, Psalm 104 says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. We can see certainly God's wisdom in his design and his order that he set in this world. Sometimes I talk about the amazing mysteries of the animal kingdom and how uniquely suited many of these animals are to their environments, whether we're talking about polar bears in the Arctic or some of the the lizards that live in 130 degree temperatures in the desert or whatever there might be. God has given us what we need to survive. Uh, he's given us many wonderful abilities to adapt to to a whole variety of different climates and environments. He's given the body uh, the ability to heal itself uh, most often. It's a self-writing machine most of the time. Uh, of course, not all the time. And so we have got the wonders of modern science and medicine to help us. Nevertheless, uh, we see God's wisdom in creation. The book of Acts uh, says, He did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So even the four seasons, which enable us to produce crops and grow crops uh, in order to have food, but also to produce the necessities of life, grow trees, uh, for paper and for paper products and for building and all these other things, certainly give a witness to God's goodness. He's given us everything necessary for life. And the conscience, you know, what does that tell us about God? St. Paul in his letter to the Romans says uh, that they, unbelievers, Gentiles, know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Now, one of the interesting things I'll, I'll, I'll use to illustrate this, if you've ever seen a little child playing around by uh, an outlet, electrical outlet. Sure. You know, make sure you grab them first. Yeah. Don't let them play there. That's just bad parenting. But Have uh, a plug in the outlet first. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> this is a bad example. I mean, I don't know where this is going. But th the point is, is that little child looks back over its shoulder you know, to see if anybody's watching. Why? Right. Because it knows that this is wrong. You're not supposed to be doing this. I shouldn't be doing this. Exactly. But but I'm going to anyway. But I'm going to anyway. Yeah. It just seems so fun. It seems so right. You know, that that's the, that's the conscience. It's It doesn't tell us, you know, who God is or what he's done to save us. It, it simply tells us don't do wrong. And if you do wrong, guess what? You deserve punishment. It doesn't say who that person that's going to punish you is. It just knows. Right. It just tells you that you deserve punishment. Now, we might ask ourselves, you know, why did God give us this evidence, uh, the evidence of himself in creation and this thing that we call a conscience? And the book of Acts answers that question by saying, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God. So this natural knowledge of God should lead us to search after God. And in fact, I think when we look at the evidence, this is supported. It seems to be true. Atheism is a minority viewpoint in the world. 
most of the world follows some sort of religion, believes in some sort of God, in some instances, many gods. And yet, like I said, the idea that there is no God is kind of a minority viewpoint. And actually, when you press atheism to its logical conclusion, you really find out that the atheist believes them, that they themselves are God. They're the determiner of what's right and wrong. They're the determiner of what's good and bad. So it's not that they don't believe in uh, in something you know that we would call God. They just think that they are God, essentially. So in, in a certain sense, we would say that it certainly seems to do that. A natural knowledge of God certainly seems to lead people to search after God. It doesn't mean that they come to the right conclusion. We see all these various world religions, and by no means are we saying that they're good or right. We're simply saying that the search for God, the quest after God, the acknowledgement of a higher power is, is a natural conclusion that a person comes to based on this natural knowledge of God. Now, you, you might say, well, is it sufficient? I mean, what, if it doesn't really tell us who God is, is it really sufficient for us, or, or what ways is, does it fall short? Psalm 96 says, For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So one of the interesting things is, uh, by nature, we don't know who the true God is. And so even if we acknowledge there's a God, our conclusions about who or what is God are never going to be based on truth. Uh, As the psalmist says, the gods of the people are worthless idols. Uh, St. Paul as he as he traveled in Athens, he, he was passing along and he noticed that they had a whole slew of altars to uh, multiple gods. Uh, the Greeks were famous for a whole pantheon of gods. And he says, as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown god. Of course, there's some irony in in that, uh, in the sense that they were very careful about making sure that they had covered all their bases. They had built many, many different altars just to make sure that they had made sacrifices to all of their gods. But just in case they left one out, just in case by happenstance they happened to forget one, they made out uh, this other altar, and it was to the the unknown god. It's kind of like the tomb of the unknown soldier, right? Yeah, but just in case you forgot about somebody. Yeah. So you got to make sure that you cover all your bases, the, the unknown God. And of course, the irony there is that Paul picks up on that and he says, well, huh, that's interesting. Uh, let me tell you about this one that you don't know because it's actually the only true one. All these other ones, you can just toss those aside because they're all fake and then false. But the one that you don't know, that's the one you really need to know. And I'm going to tell you about it. There you go. So wonderful opportunity. Paul and Silas were in jail at Philippi. And uh, they were singing hymns in the middle of the night, and uh, there was an earthquake, and the doors kind of fell open. And of course, the jailer uh, was not too pleased with this. He, he, he was, it was his watch. He realized that he probably could lose his life for this if all the prisoners walked out. So the jailer called for the lights, and he rushed in. This is from Acts chapter 16. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Here we see the limitations of the natural knowledge of God. They don't tell us how a person is saved. Just like this poor jailer, he had no idea. So he asked the question, how, what must I do to, 
to be saved. And I think this is something we're going to talk about in a future lesson. We're going to find that the default position of sinful man as he's born into this world is that there is in fact something I can do to earn salvation or inherit salvation, to be saved, whatever it might be. So this man asks a very honest question, but it's also a very revealing question because by nature we think that there's something we must do in order to be saved. Oh, it's, it's logical. Yeah, yeah, right. That's the way life works. If right. I work hard, I get a good paycheck. If, if I study hard, I'm going to get good grades. Do something, get something in return. Get something in return. And, you know, the idea of karma, right? What goes around comes around. Right. It's all based on that kind of idea. So what the Bible says about salvation completely f- flies in the face of man's natural understanding of what salvation must be. But the interesting thing is when we look at all the world religions besides Bible-believing Christianity, they all, every single one of them, teaches essentially that you get to the afterlife or heaven or whatever they might call it by something that you do, something you must do. It's only Bible-believing Christianity that says it's all what God has done. He's done it all for me, and he gives it to me as a gift, that gift made possible by the life and death and resurrection of a person named Jesus Christ, who is true God and true man. Uh, But we'll get to that eventually here. Now, St. Paul in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Again, uh, we don't know God's love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his grace, or how we're saved by the natural knowledge of God. We can only know that there is a God, a creator, and that if we do wrong, we're going to be punished. St. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, says, Remember that you were at that time, that is, when you were unbelievers, at that time you were separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. Uh, As unbelievers, we don't know salvation, we don't know Christ, we don't know who God is, and we therefore have no real hope, no hope based on truth. Since the natural knowledge of God is insufficient, and uh, obviously we're going to be talking about those very topics, God and salvation, there must be another way that God has revealed himself to us. St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Here, St. Paul speaks of especially the words that we see recorded for us in the pages of the New Testament, also uh, recorded for us by the prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, that word is something we call the Bible, uh, the inspired Word of God, which we'll talk about more next time. I mean, a lot of people talk about the Bible, but they don't really know what the Bible says about itself. And so I think it's important that we allow the Bible also to speak about itself, because you'll see a lot of experts. If you watch the History Channel and Discovery Channel, there's all sorts of TV shows about the Bible, unlocking the secrets of the Bible. And first of all, don't watch them because these people all are not believers. They don't, they doubt every aspect of the Bible. They don't believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, but they don't really know what they're talking about in terms of what does this Bible say about itself as well. So uh, next time we'll talk about more of what the Bible says about itself 
And then obviously from here on out, and including today, we're answering all these questions based on what the scriptures themselves teach. Now, I realize that I probably didn't give you the full references to many of these verses uh, that we went through today. If you would like to know the specific references, you know, please contact us and I can get those to you. And I'll try to also remember to, to make sure I give the full reference in the future. Do you have anything you want to add here, Lauren? No, I just think that um, we're, we're born with this natural knowledge. We know there is a God. Right. We don't know anything about him. Right. Except now he's reaching out to us through the Bible saying, well, here I am and here's my plan. But if you ignore the Bible and say the Bible isn't valid for anything, then you're completely missing the point and you're ignoring what God's saying. And you're right back at the, where we, we talked about today. You're, 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 the, right. you're either the fool who says in his heart there is no right. God, right. or you're one of those who says, what, what do I need to do to be saved? You don't, you you're don't still, understand You're salvation. still searching. You, you right. don't know the answers. You don't, you're as your child. Yep. Well, thank you. That, no, that's perfect. It's a, it's a good point. Uh, which leads us into our next topic. So we hope that you'll join us next time here on Under the Oaks. Under the Oaks.